This is The Guardian. The mountain of criticism against Suella Braverman is piling up. Keir Starmer is gleefully seizing a glaring opportunity. She's broken the ministerial code, lost control of a refugee centre and put our security at risk. She did get one thing right. She finally admitted that the Tories have broken the asylum system. Not much more than a week into his prime ministership, Rishi Sunak is now in the awkward position of having to stand by the decision to bring back this loosest of cannons. The Home Secretary and I, when it comes to tackling our migration, reducing migration, we are on the same page. Meanwhile, Sunak is said to be looking at the pledges he made when he ran to be Tory leader and the Conservative 2019 manifesto. Whatever the Sunak moment is all about, it doesn't look quite like it's going to deliver the steady, level-headed kind of politics we were promised only last week. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the former Justice Secretary and Conservative MP David Gork and Miata Farnbuller, economist and campaigner, who is also standing to be the Labour candidate for Camberwell and Peckham. Hello to you both. Hi. Hello. Let's start with by far the most earth-shaking political story of the week. Matt Hancock's decision to leave behind, you're laughing already, to leave behind the trivial distractions of Westminster and the responsibility to represent his poor old constituents and instead participate in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Um, Go on then. What do you think, David? Would you do this? No. no. (laughs) I can't imagine you in those red shorts eating insects somehow. Well, I don't know how to, how I feel about you not being able to imagine me. In I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, it's but, a failure uh, on my part. <laughs> uh, but no, I would not do it. And uh, oh goodness, Matt, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't do it. It's rather poor taste as well. I don't want to sound sort of too pious about this, but if you've held a portfolio that was that was sort of implicated in the deaths of ten thousands of people, I mean, even if you don't buy that, just the fact that he was the Secretary of State for Health during this huge national crisis, and that's the only association people have with him. There is something a bit tasteless, isn't there, Miata, about then just appearing in the lightest of light entertainment programmes, making a fool of yourself? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's a really strange decision. Um, I think it's a particular... <laughs> Matt Hancock? No, strange decision. <laughs> really? Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I think particularly when the risk is that you are going to lose the whip, um, and it does, I don't know, it does raise a question about your commitment uh, to the cool job of representing your constituents, uh, uh, to take that chunk of time off to be in the jungle, eating bugs or whatever it is that they do there, uh, but, but more importantly, to, to risk the whip. And I wonder whether there is a political calculation for him, thinking about his place in the Conservative Party at the moment, uh, thinking about his seat, and maybe he's thinking about an alternative career. If you're a former Tory cabinet minister and you want to do some sort of unexpected media Guardian podcast is about as far as you should go. Yeah. Matt Hancock says he was asked three times or twice, I think, to do I'm a Celebrity. And on the third time, he relented. And in the same spirit, this is a slightly clunky segue, having ruled himself out initially, Rishi Sunak has decided, this is the other big story of the week, uh, that he will attend the COP27 climate summit in Egypt. I'm the Prime Minister, get me in there, one could say. Again, in a rather different way, that doesn't send the most positive signals about his judgment, does it, David? He should have just said he was going from the get-go, shouldn't he? Yeah, he should have said he was going straight away. But I think having having you know, got that judgment wrong first time round, better to be fair to to reverse it rather than sort of sit there 
for days as other world leaders are at COP27 and he's not and everyone's asking why he's not and then Boris Johnson pops up and and so on so you know be- better to in a way to to cut his losses and say yeah you know I should go this is his first U-turn matter as well one of many we would imagine I think one of many to come I mean I think it was a poor decision in the first place um I think particularly given that we held the COP presidency last year the idea that the prime minister of this country wasn't going to turn up, I think, was pretty shameful. Um, and I'm glad he's changed his mind. But I think it does question in my head his commitment to climate. Right. Let's uh, look ahead to what we're going to be talking about today. We will talk about the mess around the aforementioned Suella Braverman, the Home Office and policy in general on asylum and refugees. And also what that mess might tell us about Rishi Sunak. And then we'll talk about the cost of living. Uh, and and where people are likely to feel the pinch and how with potential cuts to services uh, which will materialise in the midterm fiscal statement on November the 17th. So the Home Secretary has now become one of those politicians routinely described as beleaguered and uh, she's tumbled into yet another mess this week centred on the dire state of the Manston Migrant Processing Centre and her description, a very inflammatory description, of people arriving on the south coast as an invasion. Let's hear her uh, indulging in that inflammatory rhetoric. The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. Some 40,000 people have arrived on the south coast this year alone, many of them facilitated by criminal gangs, some of them actual members of criminal gangs. So let's stop pretending that they are all refugees in distress. The whole country knows that that is not true. And it's only the honourable members opposite who pretend otherwise. We should say from the off here that this is something that that has happened in politics from time to time and not just when the Conservatives are in power. David Blunkett, when he was the Labour Home Secretary, talked about the danger of places being swamped This isn't a specifically Tory problem, but nonetheless, in the same week um, or period as there had been that awful attack on a different uh, migrant processing centre involving petrol bombs, this is not the time for that kind of rhetoric. No, it's not. And and I think actually the word invasion is is noticeably stronger than than the word swamped, actually. I think think it is going a a step further. Um, So, no, that is inappropriate language. Look, there are a whole host of problems with the the appointment of Suella Braverman um, in terms of integrity. You know, six days after she was forced to resign, uh, in terms of competence as to whether she's got the ability to 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 address the issues. It's a really really important post Home Secretary and needs somebody with sufficient capability to do that. The only thing I would sort of say is is you know if I was defending the appointment. Um, From Rishi Sunak's perspective, uh, it probably was quite an important decision for Suella Braverman to endorse him. Uh, That weekend, uh, it pretty well killed off, I think, the chances of Boris Johnson getting 100 nominations and and, and going forward to the members. Uh, And in that sense, it was really quite valuable to... Yeah, but he didn't have to make a Home Secretary again. I mean, given how volatile she appears to be, uh, a less fragile ministerial portfolio, if she's going to be in the government at all, might have been an idea. Is she the person I would want to be Home Secretary? Absolutely not. I don't know what was 
what was done. I mean, there probably was a grubby deal done. And that's the accusation the Labour Party are making against Rishi Sunak. I think lots of people will feel quite angry at that suggestion because you know, there are people who are paying the price for that in you know, Manston uh, Migrant Processing uh, Centre. But I think there's a sort of wider issue as to the lengths of, to which, if you want to be leader of the Conservative Party, you have to go to keep the ERG on side. And, and you know, I think this is the, the price that Rishi Sunak paid. It's a pretty high well, price. In other words, that, you, that your government has to have periods where its outward image is all about very, very ugly, horrible, borderline nativist rhetoric. I mean, that's just the, that's just the real politique of it. There, there's there's a, a sort of sizable part of the electorate that want the really tough language on immigration and will, you know, none of us like it, but um, you know, on, on this podcast, but there's a lot of people who will agree with what Suella Braverman was saying, and a lot of those people voted Conservative last time, and Conservatives still want them voting for them. I, d- I don't like it. I don't like the coalition that the Conservatives had at the last general election, but I think that's that's the reality. I think there is one thing I would say, though, by focusing so much on this issue, by yeah, the fact that we're all now talking about small boats and asylum seekers... Yeah, Nigel Farage has spent the last two years trying to get the public debate onto this topic. Partly this is driven by numbers that have gone up a lot, but partly this is driven by the fact that Suella Braverman is the Home Secretary. And you know, she is putting focus on this issue and she is providing a big opportunity, I think, for Nigel Farage, because suddenly this issue is is back uh, and, and focused. Yeah, so let's talk about the sort of the, the wider picture here not just in terms of rhetoric but in terms of how thousands of people are being forced to live um it has been raised in the last couple of days that the conditions in the manston migrant processing center which as we all know uh, has given rise to uh, outbreaks of diphtheria and MRSA and scabies. And I've heard reports of people endlessly sleeping on cold floors and kids living in effectively sort of uh, incarcerated conditions, etc., etc. It's been said lately that this is a matter of deliberate policy. It goes with the grain of their kind of approach to this issue, which is to, as they see it, to make the asylum system as horrible and inhumane as they can as a deterrent and also to sort of wave around the horribleness of the asylum system as proof to the kind of voters that David's just talked about, that they mean it, right? So in other words, it's no accident that people are living in these conditions. Well, I generally hope that's not the case. If it is, it's clearly not working as a policy. Um, The deterrent effect isn't there. But what it is doing is absolutely undermining our obligations to refugees under our international obligations. So... I'm pretty shocked by it. I think it's so beneath us. Uh, We have to treat people with dignity and as human beings. And at the moment, we're not doing that. And I cannot believe it's happening in this country. For me, it just lays bare the complete catastrophic failure in immigration over the course of the last 12 years. So hostile environment, all you like, which I think is wrong, it is not working. We need a very different approach in order to get to an immigration system, a refugee system that is far more humane and in keeping with the fact that refugees will increase in the world because we have a combination of conflict and climate change and everything else. And we need a far better solution than the one that we have at the moment. David, it's been widely reported, although she said this is not the case, that Suella Braverman has ignored legal advice she was given as Home Secretary. Um, Rishi Sunak in PMQs on Wednesday failed to answer on that specific point. Um, Can you just give me a, a sense of what would be the consequences politically 
um, if it was conclusively proved that she had ignored legal advice? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I was, I was struck. I did watch her statement on Monday, wasn't it? And I, I, I thought she was quite careful in her language on this, where she said, I, I took into account legal advice. She didn't say she followed the legal advice. I think she, she took it into account. Now, you could say she didn't ignore it because she read it, she considered it, and then decided to pursue a different course of action or ask her for a second opinion and so on. But I think she is dancing a little bit on a pinhead here. And if I was Labour, I would absolutely keep hammering away on what advice she received. And do you think she's going to last, in a word? It's quite, quite difficult. She's in a difficult position but there are lots of incentives on the government, actually, and the prime minister to keep her there. Because, you know, if, if they are seen to roll over too easily and let her go quickly, um, that is going to antagonise the right, you know, days before a whole load of unpopular policies are about to be announced. Um, let's talk about Rishi Sunak and his judgment. There is a sort of common idea about Rishi Sunak that while he might be right wing on economics... Um, he's essentially sort of Cameronish in terms of his liberalism. You know that he that he is cut from different cloth uh, than Braverman is. That's the idea, I guess, the received opinion. But I wonder how true it is. I went to a Conservative leadership hostings over the summer in Birmingham, uh, and I watched Rishi Sunak do his thing, and he was really going out of his way to sound quite sort of Bravermanish notes about the culture wars and about immigration policy and about sending uh, refugees to Rwanda and all of that, you know. And I, I begin then to sort of think about that Maya Angelou phrase, I think, you know, when someone shows you who they are, <laughs> believe them. There might not be much to this idea, David, that he he's a Cameron liberal and he's very, very different from Suella Braverman in that respect, you know. Maybe they're broadly on the same page here. I, I'm not sure. I think if you look at the people he tends to be you know, close to, they're, they're not quite cultural warriors in the same way. But look, I mean... Give me, that's interesting. So who are you talking about? You know, see some of the people who he has brought back in at Minister of State level, like you know, Alex Chalk and Vicky Atkins. I don't think they fall into that category. I think he is largely motivated by the economics. I think that's why he went in into it. You know, he's not someone who naturally sort of crosses the street to have a fight like Suella Braverman is. But I, th I think, you know, he's looked at what he wants to do and concluded that the current Conservative Party, both internally and externally, is that you've kind of got to offer something which is quite culturally conservative or you know, socially authoritarian, choose your, choose your phrase. But as you said earlier, that brings with it the political risk that you open up ground that Nigel Farage can then run into and actually, in his own absolutely awful way, do a much more convincing version of that politics once you've opened that flank up, right? I yeah. mean, that's the danger here. Well, there, there's two problems. One, exactly that. And I can remember a period, I think it was sort of late 2014, where we as a, you know, I was a Conservative minister at the time, we could not get off the subject of immigration. We wanted to desperately. And we kept saying, no, we're going to be really tough on immigration here. But it just kept feeding the beast. And, 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 and people were saying, well, Farage will go further than you. They had a point. The other problem, which is if, if, if Sunak is essentially about an economic project, and restoring our prosperity, et cetera, et cetera. There comes a point where you know, economic progress runs into some of the problems with the cultural conservatism, because actually we do need more migrants here. 
uh, and we do need to fix our relationship with the European Union. Uh, and so you, you you can't say, well, we're primarily about economics, but then completely um, humour the cultural right uh, on their particular policies, which, which are grave damaging. Let's talk, just to conclude this part of the podcast, about um, the asylum system itself and how to make it better and how to avoid catastrophes like we're seeing at Manston. So um, obviously this is a subject that, that really demands hours of time, but just briefly, Miata, what's, what, as you see it, broadly speaking, is the answer here? Yeah, look, so for me in the short term, uh, the, the first thing we can do is create safer legal routes. And the government will say we have these, but we have it for a really tiny number of cases. And if we did that, that would have a huge impact on breaking the business model um, of people smugglers, create routes so that people can be processed in their places uh, and then be brought over here. I think the second thing that we absolutely need to do is put resources into the system for both assessing cases and making that part of the system work better. We've got to put resources in. And the third thing I think we should be doing pretty quickly is reconsidering this completely bizarre situation where when people are waiting for their asylum cases to be processed, they are not allowed to work. They live on absolute paltry sums locked in hotel rooms where we where we have a labor crisis in this country where we could have people meaningfully working but for me in the long term we've got to get to a position where we recognize that 83 percent of migrants currently lived in lower middle income countries of refugees and so for me there is an obligation for more developed countries wealthier countries to step up to the mark and i think as refugees will increase with climate change. We have to negotiate a better settlement where we say, based on your wealth, based on your population, you take a quota of refugees rather than this complete bond fight that we have that doesn't work for anyone. David, human movement is not going away. We all know that. So what are we going to do? Yeah, I, I, I agree with the, the points Miata is making in terms of alternative routes in, improving the processing. Uh, obviously, we need to rebuild our relationship with the French I think we can also look at our, you know, our hidden economy. Is there more that we could do to to address that, which perhaps creates sort of work opportunities for economic migrants um, in in a way that we, we we don't want because we want to be able to control this this element. Uh, and, and I think there are points about looking at kind of digital ID. Um, I mean, that's a much wider issue. But if we're serious about reducing the hidden economy. I think that's worth looking at. We won't solve this altogether, though. Um, you know, this is still going to be an issue. And to some extent, the small boats issue flows from the fact that we've been, got much more effective at stopping people coming through on the backs of lorries. Um, but, you know, you solve one problem and you move it on to somewhere else. OK, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we'll be talking about the cost of living, the issue that never goes away, and how and where the government can afford to fill its supposed £50 billion fiscal black hole. I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye.
Welcome back. Now, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you will have noticed that I've not been here for a few weeks. A really clever time to have off, that was, when things remain sort of uneventful and boring. Um, I wasn't just sitting at home. Uh, I was travelling around the country for the Guardian's Anywhere But Westminster video series, um, making two films which have now appeared. One set in Basingstoke, largely, the sort of commuter town um, in, the, in the upper bit of Hampshire, and another one set in Grimsby, the, the Lincolnshire former fishing town. And what came up time and time again, not surprisingly, in both places, was a sense of this deep, deep crisis people are experiencing, and also how far up the income scale it goes. Um, here are a couple of the people I spoke to, starting off with the woman I met on a Saturday morning in Basingstoke, an area we might have previously considered a sort of stereotypically Southern and Tory and relatively affluent. This is how she described to me her life at the moment. Sorry to disturb you. How's life at the minute? Tough. Tough. Go on. <laughs> um, yeah, been without hot water or heating for seven months. How come? Because that way I'm not using any gas, so then I can build up a bit of a buffer for the winter. I'm stuck in a hard situation. Um, I had four boys and they've left home, and I'm being hammered by the bedroom tax. So that was uh, that woman's experience in. Basingstoke, proving really that a lot of problems people are experiencing haven't just happened. They go back many, many years into the coalition period, actually. Um, that's evidenced by her mention of the bedroom tax. Now, the next clip I'm going to play um, is of an encounter with a man in Grimsby who in 2009 had left the British Army and he was now living a life which, in the course of this conversation, I just found unimaginable, really. I ain't got no money. I ain't had no money for two months. Uh, I've been in the dark uh, living with candles. Because I'm ex-army, I, I can survive. I was cooking dinner on the fire pit in the garden. Uh, where were you getting your food from? The food bank, but they only do it one, once a day, so I just had to just starve a few days. Like two days without food, and then one day on, I need to get a phone so they can contact me, but I can't get a phone because I sold, sold it for food. <laughs> you haven't got a mobile either? I said to sell it for food, because I'll be dead. I'm off to sell a coat for some food. That's what happened in Grimsby. That was a food bank that opened at one o'clock in the afternoon and straight away there was a queue of about 200 people. I mean, 200 households were in the queue and that was that man's experience. I mean, I would say really that just about everywhere I go now, there is a sense of deep malaise, you know, not just empty shops and cracks in the pavement, but people um, experiencing a level of hardship they never thought they'd have to deal with. Um, and clearly... Um, if it's that bad in Basingstoke, you can imagine how awful it is in Grimsby. Grimsby is a very disadvantaged, deprived place, much as people there are trying to make a difference on the ground. That's the reality of it. Now, in the lead-up to the medium-term fiscal statement on November the 17th, we are now hearing loud and clear that Jeremy Hunt, the new Chancellor, wants to fill the gap in the public finances by finding money through a 50-50 split of tax rises and spending cuts. Now, we don't know yet, but speculation is mounting. Quite detailed speculation, actually. Quite informed speculation, it looks like. Miata, do you have a sense of what that's going to mean? Yeah, so look, um, essentially, the, the most important thing to remember in all of this is that the black hole that the government talks about is a function of the fiscal rules that they set. Fiscal rules, by the way, that governments, successive governments change constantly. So there is the ability to give yourself a bit of flex. At the moment, the government is suggesting that half um, of this hole will be filled 
by spending cuts and half will be filled by tax rises. Um, and for me, the big question I ask is, what on earth are we going to cut? Now, you might choose, for example, to cut depend, uh, defence spending uh, and not uh, adhere to the 3% uh, commitment um, that has been muted. But beyond that, if you're thinking about cutting core public services, schools, hospitals, our criminal justice system, I don't see how you do it without pushing them over the edge. And so it feels like the wrong calculation. I think... For me, tax rises have to do the heavy lifting and it ought to be tax rises on the parts of the system that have the capacity to bear them. David, you're a, you're a conservative and clearly conservatives nine times out of 10 when you raise the prospect of tax rises don't like it. And traditionally in politics, the sort of collective conservative mind, as evidenced by George Osborne going 80-20 between spending cuts and tax rises, it tends to lean into spending cuts. But what do you think of the idea that there is just nothing left to cut and, and socially, the effects of further cuts would be calamitous. That applies not, not incidentally just to public services. There's also this huge question about whether some um, uprate benefits in line with inflation and the failure to do that, I think, again, would be socially catastrophic. So what does he do? Yeah, I, look, I think it's really difficult to get substantial sums from public spending. Um, this is a different situation than the one we were in in 2010. In 2010, we'd gone through a long period where public spending had increased well ahead of inflation. I mean, the way I would particularly look at it is, you know, a large part of public spending is public sector pay. And there's talk about, well, we're going to hold public sector pay down to sort of like 2% or so on. But it is a real problem across the public sector in finding people to work in the public sector. Because we've got a tight labour market, there are plenty of jobs knocking around, and people will go elsewhere. So I think the idea that you can kind of find lots of savings in public sector pay is unlikely. And if you can't find it in public sector pay, where where are you going to find it? Again, different from 2010, because at that point, you'd seen private sector pay fall a lot during the global financial crisis, and public sector pay hadn't. The circumstances are now very, very difficult. And for all those reasons, and I speak as someone who doesn't like putting up taxes and, and thinks there are real problems with economies where taxes are too high and uncompetitive. But I, if you're serious about the public finances, I think you have to lean very heavily on tax increases. And there's no there's no getting away from that. But I don't think the Conservative Party internally has kind of come to terms with that yet. I don't, I don't think they're reconciled to that. That's why they chose Liz Truss as leader in the summer. And they may therefore seal their political fate in the sense that for, for a number of reasons, uh, in the initial period of austerity that you're talking about, which began in 2010, I mean, it pains me to say this, but a lot of people bought the idea that the deficit had to be brought down and something had to be done and so on. Well, it did. And I, I, um, yeah, we can have an argument about that. I don't agree with that. I, thought, I think that was a propitious time for borrowing in retrospect more than ever, I think, that in retrospect. But nonetheless, leaving that aside, the public is in a different place now, it seems to me. Probably because more people are directly experiencing hardship. The idea, therefore, that there's going to be more... Li I'm talking about ambient austerity here, which we haven't mentioned. So quite apart from public services deteriorating, there is this question about litter in the streets and potholes and parks where the swings are never repaired and young people have nothing to do and all the rest of it. Now, that's the reality that a lot of people and places live with already. But the idea of that deepening, I think, is electoral poison for the Conservatives, it seems to me. Miata? 
I, I think it's completely untenable. I mean, look, the, the, the big difference now is that people have seen the consequences of not investing. You know, if you don't invest in community infrastructure, if you don't invest in your transport system, if you don't invest in your energy system, if you don't invest in social infrastructure enough. And, you know, if we compare ourselves to other European countries, we have always underinvested and we are seeing it. That's why people feel the country isn't working. And the idea that you would even think about driving through further cuts suggests to me that the government is completely divorced from reality when there are options. You know, I'm really struggling with the narrative around this idea of 50-50, where we know that actually with a sort of gap that you're closing, I think you could smooth your period out to make it less difficult for yourself. But even if you wanted to fill that gap, we know that there are taxes that could be applied to those that have both made big windfall uh, gains in this period, but also people on much higher incomes in order to close that gap. David, one of the things I found most remarkable reading around this sort of speculative talk about what is going to be or not be announced on November the 17th was the idea that capital expenditure might take a great big cut. And at which point the last dregs of levelling up as a credible idea just go up in smoke, don't they? One of the, I mean, look, one thing I, I, I would say is I, I do think there is a genuine problem with the public finances, as, as was demonstrated with what happened after Kwasi Kwarteng's disastrous mini-budget. So I, I, you know, you, there's only so far that you can go in terms of testing the market's patience. And, and that's... Can I just challenge David on, on that? Because this narrative has taken hold. And what I would say is that when... Uh, the energy guarantee was announced, which was unfunded and was to the tune of 100 billion rather to 200 billion. The markets mm-hmm. barely moved. What the markets responded to was an economic strategy that made no sense to anyone. The idea that you just tap, you know, cut taxes and then miraculously the economy would grow and, you know, tax receipts would increase. No one bought that. And I think it was the lack of competence or the seeming lack of competence of the market reacted to rather than the quantum of borrowing, because much of that was done before where the market was like, well, actually, in an emergency across the world, governments are boring, but we understand the rationale for it. And we also understand the plan to get yourself out of it. And none of that was forthcoming in the mini budget. What do you think? Of that? That's interesting, David, is that the idea that borrowing isn't the problem. It's the, ab- the absence of a plan and the appearance of general chaos. And let's be honest, Brexit or the version of Brexit we've ended up with. I mean, it's not any great surprise that, that the markets don't seem to have much faith in Britain's future and so on. And the idea that we can economically revive ourselves and we've just cut ourselves off from our largest export market. I mean, that's the other thing nobody yeah, talks I mean, I, about. Absolutely. The, yeah, the, the market's patience was tested by Brexit and everything that flowed from that. And Miata is absolutely right in terms of the energy support package didn't cause a, a problem, but partly because that was temporary. And I think markets understood that governments had to step in in those those circumstances. The problem, I think, with the with with Quasi's plans was that you were having, you know, permanent tax cuts with no plans to to, to fill the gap. But look, on on capital spending, uh, I completely take your point. It would undermine levelling up. The the argument for it in circumstances where no choices are good is that previously what Rishi Sunak had set out was a pretty generous big increase in capital spending. And one wonders whether the government, frankly, has got the capacity to get all that money out the door, you know, to deliver all the projects on the time frame that they had in mind. You know, a lot of that capital spending actually can be very beneficial for the economy and long term growth. And that could be part of a plan which the markets would understand. And the markets are much more sympathetic, I suspect, to good quality capital spending than they would be to current spending. In conclusion, in terms of the immediate political future, 
it seems to me that if they stick to this 50-50 idea, then if Rishi Sunak had, had you know, the merest political honeymoon, it's definitely going to be over in the sense that his own party is going to take fright at the idea of tax rises. And then the sort of left and centre left of politics will take fright, quite rightly, at the spending cuts aspect of it. And he's going to be in very politically choppy waters. I mean, as of November the 17th, that's the political future we're looking at, isn't it, David? Yeah, I think there's a risk that they end up pleasing nobody. Uh, about this, and yeah, they are absolutely caught in this this problem that the party won't accept fifty percent coming from tax increases, and um, the public won't accept fifty percent coming from spending cuts because as that gets delivered, that's going to be really really painful. It is, I should also say, going to be a problem for whoever is in government. Assume that's the yeah, next I'll question I was going to ask me out of this question. I'll leave you to do. So that. here's the here's the point. It's very easy, isn't it, for us? Even though we might feel we're right to sit here and say, "Isn't it awful? There should be no spending cuts and so on." But the politics of this could turn out to be quite advantageous for the Conservatives in the sense that, that it ties Labour back into what did for the Labour Party, arguably in 2010, as this sort of straight jacket of supposed fiscal responsibility. And the fact that it, it's very difficult for a party of the centre-left to make its case in those circumstances. And even if it does, it doesn't really fill its supporters full of joy because it can't offer very much at all. There's a real danger for the Labour Party here in that sense. Yeah, I think if it binds itself uh, into that, it is. But I think for me, the you know the get out for Labour is that there are alternatives. And actually, you've got a lot of organisations, the New Economics Foundation, IPPR, a whole lot of other economists saying that, you know, Part of the pressure we're facing at the moment are short-term responses to pandemic and now the cost of living crisis. There are huge windfall gains to be made that are being made in the energy sector, in the banking sector, but impose tougher windfall tax. You know, if you take a windfall tax on energy producers that's tougher in line with what we're seeing in Europe, you're talking about 15 to 20 billion that could be raised. There is still the scope to actually equalize the income that comes from things like dividends and capital gains uh, with the tax rate for income that comes from pay. That would raise between 14 billion and 20 billion. There is the scope to actually impose a wealth tax on people who are earning over 10 million. That would raise 10 billion. So there are options there. And I think for me, when we talk about difficult decisions and we talk about tax rises, those things have to be put on the table. And that's how you get yourself out of this, in my view, artificial bind that's been created. This is a conversation we will have next week, the week after that, the week after that, and the week after that, and and probably for at least a year's worth of weeks. So I look forward to that, as I'm sure both of you do. Thank you for listening. Thank you uh, most of all to David Gork and Mia Tafambula. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a very nice five-star review. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 